We're in Leviticus chapter 23 tonight. Uh, we're going to look at 23 and 24. We've been taking it a couple chapters at a time, and I'm kind of like just highlighting or summarizing the chapters that are sort of repeated that we've already gone through and looked at um, earlier in Leviticus. So uh, there's going to be some summarizing and verse by verse when it is a new concept or a new truth or a new theme kind of thing. So Leviticus 23, and, and remember, God gave Israel a calendar that was actually tied to the rhythm and seasons uh, and history of the nation. And so that this calendar summarized what God had done for them in the past and anticipated what, what God would do in the future. So the salvational work of Christ, the founding of the church, the future of Israel, they were all illustrated in these feasts, which is kind of what we're going to look at in chapter 23. These are like special days called feasts. Nine times, it's, it's, they're called feasts, holy convocations, ten times. Feasts had nothing to do with food. <laughs> like in, you know, in the U.S., we're like, feast, let's go eat, right? It has nothing to do with food or eating, actually. But So the Day of Atonement, actually, the people fasted. So we know it, it doesn't have to do with food. But, but feasts simply means like appointed time. Convocations gives the idea that during each feast or appointed time, the people met together as a congregation in unity. And so this word really means proclamation. It means announcement. Uh, the Lord appointed and announced these events. And so let's pray, and then we'll uh, cruise through chapter 23. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We just thank you, God, that uh, you speak to us through uh, the verses, Lord, through your truth. And we just pray that you would speak to us tonight, Lord, even as we look at these feasts and these different regulations and ordinances and stuff like that, Lord, that you gave to the children of Israel, Lord, that you would even speak to us through this, because we know the whole word, Lord, is um, a love letter, Lord. It uh, helps us to see clearly, Lord, and many of these things, even in the Old Testament, Lord, carry over on into the New Covenant and the New Testament, Lord, and we just thank you for that. We just pray that you bring clarity tonight from your word, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 23 speaks of seven, uh, seven annual feasts Israel celebrated, and these, you know, these feasts have a lot of prophetic significance as well, which we'll look at that sort of at the end. But uh, let's read verses 1 to 3. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim, to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So the Sabbath wasn't a feast, but it was a day set apart unto the Lord. And it's really going to explain it more as we go on. Verse 4, it says, it says, These are the feasts of the Lord. Holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. So the seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So the Feast of Passover is what this is talking about. So on the Jewish ceremonial calendar, the first month was known as 
uh, Nissan with one S, right? Not the car, with one S, Nissan. But Passover was held on the 14th of Nissan each year. And um, we, we really fleshed that out early on in Leviticus, so we're going to continue on in verse 6. Verse 6, and on the uh, 15th day of the same month, feast of unleavened bread. On the Lord, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation, do no customary work. I read that already, I'm sorry. So this is the feast of unleavened bread, verse 6 to 8. And this was like a week-long celebration, uh, the week following Passover. So it was Passover and then the feast of unleavened bread. And this feast really showed the purity Israel was required to walk in, right? And so Leviticus is a whole book about holiness. It's about being set apart from the world for the Lord, for the children of Israel, right? And so, which was illustrated, so this was all about purity, but it was illustrated by eating only bread without leaven. And we've seen that actually numerous times already up to chapter 23, because leaven is a type of what? It's a type of sin. Yeah, it's a type of sin after the blood deliverance of Passover. And so verse 9 continues on, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And verse 13 and 14 goes on in that same vein, but this is the feast of the first fruits, verses 9 to 14. So the day following this, the Passover Sabbath was the time to give the first fruits of the harvest to God in anticipation of a greater harvest to come, which we're going to see as well. And then in verse 15 to 21, I'm not going to read, but 15 to 21 is the Feast of Pentecost, or it's also called the Feast of Weeks. Fifty days after the Feast of First Fruits, when the wheat harvest was complete, Israel celebrated the Feast of Pentecost by bringing the new grain offering to the Lord, and by waving the two loaves of leavened bread unto the Lord. That was the offering. And then verse 22, which we are going to read, says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. I love this. <laughs> we, we looked at this a, a few weeks ago, but generosity to the poor and the stranger. So again, this was, this was the law providing for the poor by not reaping the corners of the harvest. They would leave that alone. So those who didn't have any food could come and just take it. Like it was okay, this is for you. We're going to help you out. And that's the thing, you guys. God has a heart for those in need. And so should followers of Christ, right? Because chances are most of us, one time or another, have been in need. And so I would just say, show love to those who are lowly, who are down, who are out, those who feel forgotten. You know, a lot of people are lonely and lost, sad and depressed because they just feel like no one loves them. They just feel like no one cares about them. They just feel like no one sees me, no one knows. We, we are all called to help others in one way or the other. Like, how do we know? And here's a question that, we, you know, I've heard a lot, but how do we know who to reach out to? There's so many, so many needs all over the place, right? Well, I would just say there's a few different ways we can find out who God wants us to help. Number one, pray for discernment. I think that's probably the main thing. Pray, Lord, who do you want me to help? And, 
And as you're praying, God's going to give you a heart. Who do we reach out to and who not to? Because if we were to reach out to every single person all around us all the time, we would be homeless too. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm just being realistic. Like we can't, So Lord, do you want me to buy this person a meal? Do you want me to pray for them? Do you want me to give them $5? What, like how do you want me to reach out or should I just look for them tomorrow? You know, Lord, give me direction. Give me guidance. By your Holy Spirit, illuminate what you want me to do. And he will. And also another way to find out who to reach out to, walk by faith. And God will make each day clear to you as far as who to help and how to help. Um, when Brianne went to Africa and, you know, reaching out and all the, st- all the stuff that you guys, we all like basically donated. So we were able to do so much as a church. That's one of the moments where I'm like, man, our little church did huge things for God. That was awesome. I always, i always remember that for sure. But when they went, you know, some days into it, you know, there was, there was a boy and, um, he was in great need. His name was Jordan. Right. And, and so she told me about it, and it was a no-brainer when she, when she told me about it and said, you know, here's the situation and everything. And, and so she told me, and she's like, can we help? I was like, yes. <laughs> like, I didn't even have to. Some things, you guys, you don't have to pray about. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, some things you just know. You're like, I can sit here and pray for a week, or I can just be like, Lord, I know exactly what you want me to do. <laughs> you, you know, you've been speaking on these things a little bit here and a little bit there, but it, it sort of comes to a culmination where you're like, I don't even have to pray. Like, yes, let's take a step. And so... Pray for discernment. Walk by faith. God's going to make clear who he wants you to reach out to, who he wants you to talk to. I love mornings. I love early. Some people like are like, you know, it's early mornings are like the worst thing for them, but I love early mornings because um, I'm able to pray and it's quiet. You know, I'm, I'm undistracted. You know, there's no distractions anywhere. I'm like, Lord, what do you want to do today? Who do you want me to talk to? I don't know, Lord, but just direct me. Each Direct each step, however you want to use me today. And he will. He's going to use you exactly how he wants to use you, but we got to seek him to know how he wants to use us and, and who, he wants us, uh, who he wants to use us for, you know? So, God has a heart for the poor, all that to say that. But verse 23, it says, So then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer you shall uh, offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Okay, so the Feast of Trumpets is what this is. The Feast of Trumpets, also called Rosh Hashanah. On the first day of the month uh, of Tishri, there's a, this feast was held. And so basically trumpets were blown to gather God's people together, for a holy convocation, in other words, a get-together, like a meeting, a time to gather. So from the beginning, God really did ordain that his people not be lone rangers, right? Not go out on their own and be like, I don't need anyone, you know? I'm going to build my house on the side of a mountain and have no contact with anyone. Like, he, that's not God's prescribed, created way for us to live. Um, we're supposed to be in unity, which is a beautiful thing. So, they would blow the trumpets. In verse 26 to tw- uh, 32, this is, was the Day of Atonement, or called Yom uh, Kippur. Kippur. Actually, uh, this old guy, who was it? Um, not Warren Wearsby. Uh, who's that old guy, the really old guy? He, he's died so far. But he's a really good commentary. He's always like, Yom Kippur. I don't know. I always, it's always, I'm always like, don't say that. But, um, but this wasn't a celebration feast. So basically Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, it, it was like a time, it was really cool because it was a time of humble recognition of one's sin 
and the need for atonement. So it wasn't just sitting there going, oh, I'm a sinner, I suck, I'm horrible, this is, I've made so many mistakes, I'm just... No, you recognize the sin, right? But then you see your need for atonement because of that sin. So we looked at this in chapter 16, probably months ago, but this was a day for Israel to set aside as just a day of reflection. Those are good, right? You ever have those days of reflection where you're just like, where am I at? What's going on? Let me assess what's happening here in my life, in my heart. And I would just say, as they recognize their sin and their need for atonement, I would say this desperation for God because of actions that we've taken is actually a good thing. Like when we recognize I totally fell short, I messed up, and then we say, Lord, forgive me, it's, it's a good thing because it's healthy because we're saying, Lord, yeah, I'm not sinless. I'm not doing this apart from you. I can't do this without you. So it's actually a, a, really, a really good action to take. Like if people don't recognize their sin, then they won't see a need for atonement. They're like, oh, what sin? I'm, I do way more good than bad. You may have heard that. You know, I do way more good, so I'm fine. So that, like, if they didn't recognize their um, failures or faults or mistakes, then repentance wouldn't be necessary. Like, atonement wouldn't be necessary. Sacrifices wouldn't be necessary. This is why the law is a tutor. The law is a tutor to show God's people they fall short. What does a tutor do? They, they basically they help you. They help you understand. They help you under, get it. Um, so what this recognition leads to is a real need to get one's sin covered. Psalm 14, Jeremiah 17, and Romans 3 all talk about how a whole bunch of people do really good. No, no, no one does good. Like, basically, our modern vernacular, I guess the slang version is just like, everyone sucks. <laughs> like, like, we all fall short. We all mess up. We all sin. We all miss the mark. We all need to be forgiven, too. So we must recognize our sin just like the children of Israel, but then realize, okay, well, there's a way for that to be covered for the children of Israel. Under the new covenant, there's a way for it to be forgiven because the work is already done on the cross. So then verse 33 to 44 is the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a time, this is a good one, because this was a time to actually rejoice in God's deliverance and provision, specifically during the wilderness wandering. A time to look back in gratitude for bringing them into the promised land. I think a lot of times if we don't look back in gratitude, then we're going to have a rough time in the present because we're not going to realize all that God has done. And we're going to feel like things are impossible presently because we haven't looked back to be like, wait a second, God's got me through way more than what I'm going through right now. He's prepared me with all that I went through with what I'm going through right now. Oftentimes if we don't look to the past to see how God has worked, we're going to be sort of defeated in the present. And so it's a good thing to look back in gratitude for, for bringing us deliverance in many different ways. But the Feast of Tabernacles started and ended with rest. How many people like rest? Does anyone like rest? A couple? All right. Um, the rest of you are like, I love being stressed out. No, like we all love rest, right? We love rest. And um, if you, I know a lot of people can't nap, but if you can nap, and nap is great, right? But... Um, but it was about, so the Feast of Tabernacles started, started and ended with rest, and it was really about celebration, it was about rest, it was about refreshment. I mean, that's, that sounds good, right? Like one commentator said, God provided both holidays and vacation days that all centered on him, about this. It all centered on him. Like the whole point of the Christian life 
is that the Lord Jesus would be the foundation and the center of our whole lives, of who we are. Like some leave Jesus outside in the cold, if you will, as they go into places that only sin happens. They suppress that he's with them, actually. They don't want to think about it. Put their Bible on the shelf. Put all their like, Christian stuff away so they can engage in things that aren't holy. Some see Jesus as a traveling companion who they call when they need something. You know, Some see Jesus as a last resort when they feel like things are difficult and they need help. They won't call on him until they're in like a bind or is stuck, or like not knowing what to do, or needing something, need, and then they call on him. That's when they call on him. Some see Jesus as an acquaintance that they aren't really close with, but he's there. Like it's very impersonal. Revelation 3, you know, as know that verse, right, that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Well, some people put their AirPods on in and ignore the knocking. <laughs> they act like he's not there, right? It's kind of like, I don't know if I've never done this. You guys might have done this, but no, but if someone comes to the door, maybe it's a salesman, I don't know, or someone selling magazines, right? And you're like, shh, kids, kids, be quiet, shh, be quiet, turn off the lights. <laughs> I've never done, no, we've all kind of, I think most of us have done it, but you, you, you kind of hide because you're just like, I can't, I don't have time for this, right? So you can act like they're not there. Um, but that's the thing, like some people do that with Jesus. They're like, he's knocking on the door of their heart and they're like, oh, I'll get to, shh, I don't want, I don't want to answer. I don't want to deal with that right now. I don't want to deal with I don't want to be convicted right now, right? But Jesus, that's the thing. He needs to be, the Lord needs to be the center and the focal point of, every day, of our everyday lives, not just Christmas and Easter. And you guys know that. You guys come all the time, right? You guys, we gather together all the time to seek the Lord through his word. You know, not just when, when, well, not just when you feel spiritual, you know? Like, I'm not feeling like the whole church thing today, right? But every day all the time. If Jesus is not the God of our lives, he's not the center, something or someone else will take his place. And the result will be misery, confusion, emptiness. The Lord is, is center stage, and we should be, if you will, unseen. It's all about him, not us. He, we should make him known. He should be seen. And so ending chapter 23, before we get to chapter 24 and look at some verses, I just kind of want to give you a little snapshot of the significance of the feasts uh, or the prophetic significance of the feast in Leviticus 23. So the first four feasts are linked together, and the last three feasts are linked together, and there's separation of time between these two groups of feasts. And so the group of the first four feasts relate to the work of Jesus in his coming of his early, uh, of his, I'm sorry, his earthly ministry. So let me give you a breakdown of each one. So the Feast of Passover clearly presented Jesus as our, as our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. The Lamb of God who was sacrificed and whose blood was received and applied so the wrath of God would pass over us. Aren't you glad? I'm so, I'm so happy about that. Thank you, Lord. The wrath of God passes over me because Christ died on the cross. And then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which relates to the time of Jesus' burial and his perfect, sinless sacrifice on the cross, during which he received by God the Father as holy and complete, the Holy One who would not see corruption, like Acts 2.27 says, perfectly accomplishing our salvation. We, may, we can regard like the burial or the atonement of Jesus 
as a small thing in God's redemptive plan, but it was an essential part of Paul's gospel. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So then we have the Feast of the First Fruits, which relates to the resurrection of Jesus, who was the first human to receive resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.18 says, <clears throat> And he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. So you can, you can find more on that in 1 Corinthians 15. But we have the Feast of Pentecost, and obviously it's connected with the birth of the church and the harvest resulting. Acts 2, you can see that. Significantly, in the ceremony of the Feast of Pentecost, two unleavened loaves of bread are waved as a holy offering to God, speaking of the bringing of unleavened Gentiles into the church. You know, we're going to look at that actually this Sunday, when uh, basically Jesus was talking to, you know, he taught in the synagogue and everything, and he was talking about the Gentiles and everything, and like including them and all, and and they were like, let's throw him off a cliff. Like they wanted to, they, they went from marveling at Jesus to wanting to murder him. Uh, but that's Sunday. But between the first set of four feasts and the second set of three feasts, there's a, a time gap, almost four months, which significantly was a time of harvest in Israel. Even as our current age is a time of harvest for the church until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And you can see that in Romans 11.25. These are just scripture references. But the second group, uh, or the last three feasts, relate to events connected with the second coming of Jesus, the Feast of Trumpets. It speaks of the ultimate assembly of God's people at the second, or I'm sorry, at the sound of a trumpet, the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17, and of the gathering of Israel for the special purpose God has for them in the last days. The Day of Atonement not only speaks of the ultimate perfect atonement Jesus offered on our behalf, but also of the affliction and salvation Israel will see during the Great Tribulation. That's the Day of Atonement. And then my wife's like, why are you going so fast? I can tell by her face. I'm sorry, you can get my, I'll email you my notes later. Um, but it will be a time when the soul of Israel is afflicted, but for their ultimate salvation. As Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, regarding that period, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And then we have the Feast of Tabernacles, which speaks of the millennial rest or of comfort of God for Israel and all of God's people. Right? It is all about peace and rest from beginning to end. Tabernacles is specifically said to be celebrated during the millennium. And you can, I can give all these references later. It references Zechariah 14, 16 to 19. But specifically, there's good evidence that each of the four feasts you know, relevant to the first coming of Jesus saw their prophetic fulfillment on the exact day of the feast. Jesus was actually crucified on Passover, John 19, 14. His body would have been buried, and his, his holy and pure sacrifice acknowledged by God the Father during the Feast of Unleavened Bread following, and he would have risen from the dead on the first fruits the day after Passover Sabbath. Additionally, the church was founded on the actual like day of Pentecost, 
It all, it just all lines up. It all lines up. That's the point. But for this reason, many speculate it would be consistent for God to gather his people to himself at the rapture on the day of the Feast of Trumpets on the Jewish holiday called Rosh Hashanah. And this can certainly, this can definitely be a possibility. I know that was a lot, but that was chapter 23. So we're going to move on to chapter 24. Um, and there, really, this is care for the tabernacle. And we really went over a lot of this, but we are going to touch on some of, these, some of these verses for sure. So chapter 24 of Leviticus, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil, pressed olives for the light, to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning from the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And so if you remember, remember the lamps, they were, uh, they were on solid gold lampstands. We, went, we took a whole tour, basically, of every part of the tabernacle. And so the lamps were, were on solid gold lampstands. They were the only source, remember, the only source of light for the tabernacle. So these lamps had to be filled up so, uh, so to be tended regularly. They had to be supplied with pure olive oil, pure. And the wicks had to be trimmed so they continually give light. And it says, from evening until morning before the Lord continually. So there's two essentials for the priest. They provide oil regularly and the oil had to be beaten and pure. So what produced the purest oil was beating or crushing olives and straining out the impurities. That's how they did it. So the God of Israel deserved the best. That's a symbolism right there. He deserved the best. It has to be totally pure. Take the time and do it right. Give him the best. Zechariah 4 actually connects oil for burning with the Holy Spirit and identifies the lampstand or the two, as the two faithful servants of God. So that would do this. So the lampstand symbolized the word of God, which gives light in this dark world. Psalm 19, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. No one outside the holy place, and this is significant, no one outside the holy place could see the light from the golden lampstand, but only those within it could. Picture, it's a picture of unbelievers not seeing spiritually and believers seeing spiritually. It's like Paul said, if they don't have the Spirit, they, they don't understand the things of the Spirit. They're not born again. So the lampstand gave light so the priests could burn incense, which symbolized prayer. Remember, we, we, we went over that, you know, the smoke goes up just like our prayers go up to the Lord. But apart from the scriptures, we can't pray effectively. And let me just give you a verse, uh, Psalm 14, 1 2 says, you probably have heard this, but the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. And I love what Jesus said in John 15, 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do some things. No, without me, you can do nothing. And again, it's been said, like, yeah, I can do a bunch of stuff without Jesus. You can, but nothing of purpose, nothing of eternal value, nothing uh, in terms of furthering the kingdom of God. Like, we need Jesus for that. Apart from the Lord and his word, we can't pray effectively. And that, the lampstand's light illuminates the beautiful tabernacle. 
the light of the Spirit brings clarity to us. Right? And so the, the, the lampstands could also symbolize Israel like the 12 loaves of bread did. Israel was called to be a light to the other sinful nations. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8, 12. And he never took a break from being the light. His light never dimmed, if you will. He can only reflect his light, or we can only reflect his light when we are continually supplied with the Holy Spirit and have our wicks trimmed, which means going through trials. So, so verse 5 through 9, uh, this tabernacle bread really speaks of fellowship with God. It speaks of fellowship that the Lord wanted with Israel. Showbread, which is stated in verses 5 to 9, is bread. It means, it's an interesting uh, phrase, showbread means bread of the face. Bread of the face. Meaning the bread was being eaten in the presence or before the face of God. God wanted fellowship to be fresh, if you will. He didn't want a stale communion with his people, but a fresh new relationship. And so the bread was to be baked fresh each week and put on the gold table uh, each Sabbath. The old bread was given to the priest to eat only in the holy place. So they ate the leftovers. But this symbolized that the only, you know, only that the tribe of Levi could eat the bread, but all the tribes were represented by the jewels on the high priest's garment and the 12 loaves of bread on the table. The loaves reminded the priests about the 12 tribes of the people of God. So, so here's the thing. Since the priests, they were serving in the tabernacle day after day, these items reminded them that they were serving both God and the children of Israel because they were so in the midst of serving, they could forget all the people that they were there to serve. They were to serve God, but hey, there's a, there's a whole bunch of tribes and many, many people who you guys are here serving. So they didn't have contact with the people regularly. They didn't walk among the crowds and talk to them and, and all that. They were doing the work of, of the Lord in the tabernacle, in that small space. And so what the Lowe's represented was like, oh yeah, there's, there's more people out there. There's more people out there. That, and this is why we're doing this, for the people. So verse 10, it says... Verse 10 to 12, it says, Now the son of the Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and man of Israel fought each other in the camp. Right? And so, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord excuse me, might be shown to them. So this guy was like half Egyptian. He was half Hebrew. Um, he was part of like the mixed multitude that, that, um, that went with Israel out of Egypt. So this guy's crime was blasphemy. What does blasphemy mean? Well, it means to like attack someone, especially God, with your words. It's verbal abuse directed at the Lord. And someone said, in the Near East, the name of a person was bound up intimately with his character, so that in the case of God, blasphemy was, in effect, an act of repudiation. Yes. Um, So it was common for Egyptians to curse their many gods. Like, they had so many gods, they would just curse them if they didn't like something that happened, right? 
Uh, but the root of this man's sin was that he considers the Lord God of Israel on the same level as the petty Egyptian gods. So what happens? Well, here's the penalty for the blasphemer. Verse 13 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, again, right, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. So two or three witnesses basically had to lay hands on the blasphemer, and he was stoned by his people. Two reasons, because number one, just geographically, there's a lot of stones in, you know, in Israel. There's just a lot of rocks, right? That's, that was a weapon. They used it as a weapon, right? You can use anything as a weapon. But, and number two, the community killing this, this guy basically symbolized that he sinned against God, but also he sinned against man. So to avoid blaspheming God, you know, blaspheming God, the Jews went to great lengths to avoid saying or writing the name of God. Great lengths. Like in their thinking, they could not blaspheme God's name if they never said it. I'm just never going to say it. So only the high priest could pronounce the holy name of God, Yahweh, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's it. And so the proper pronunciation of the name would be passed on from the high priest to his successor with the former's last breath. With his dying breath, he could finally say the name once to, to the next guy in line, right? And this is why where it was confusion for many years about the exact pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, some mistakenly pronouncing the name Jehovah instead of Yahweh, or it's really pronounced Yahweh, which is basically Y-A-H-V-E-H. But the Jews, they also did not write the name of God because if that paper were destroyed, it might be considered blasphemy or taking the, the name of the Lord in vain because they wrote the name of God on, on, on a scroll or whatever, and then it, it went in the trash, basically. So they would write Adonai, which means Lord, instead of Yahweh. And instead of God, they would write capital G-D. And they wouldn't write the whole, you know, and refer to God with names like the name instead of saying God. Verses 17 to 22, and here were some basic provisions for law and order, okay? Like, like in the context of giving penalty for the Egyptian blasphemer, God stated a principle of his justice. Basically, crimes must be punished, but in proportion appropriate to the crime. So fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Uh, many people have taken eye for eye, tooth for tooth as a command. Instead, God intended it as a limit. So no man or judge would be able to make up his own punishment. So human nature wants to hurt our attacker worse than they hurt us. God here puts a limit on the vengeful tendency of man, which we need. So Jesus rightly condemned the taking of this command regarding law and order in the community and applying it to personal relationships, where love, forgiveness, going the extra mile, not equal, retribution, is to be the rule. And I just want to read you a few verses of Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, what Jesus says. 
He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He said, but I tell you, no, to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So he elaborates, expands, and really explains the law. But again, in the Old Testament here, for the children of Israel, there were limits, there were boundaries. It's like if someone wronged you, you couldn't just go off and go crazy and you know, um, give them all you have, right? You, 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 it's, it's, it's about boundaries. It's, as we were looking at Leviticus, it had a lot to do with boundaries. You know? God knew what we needed, what they needed, right? He knew... Um, exactly what laws, what ordinances, everything to put into place, right? Last verse in 23 says, Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. So really this demonstrates to us the law of God was not given to Israel for, um, for interesting facts or, or just guidelines, but God expected them to obey it. And here they obey even when it is difficult. Right now, under the new covenant, we are washed and forgiven, but should we still obey God or just do what we want because his grace is available and his mercies are new? Well, still we follow. We still seek. We still look to him. We still serve him. We still serve others. We still follow his word to us. We still have guidelines and boundaries and precepts to follow, but it's not a burden. It's a blessing. We get to follow him. He's done so much for us. We were talking earlier, as you look back, you realize, look at all he's done for me. I can't believe this. Like, he's going to do, he's going to get me through whatever you're facing right now, like the trimming of the wicks. You know, God really, we go through trials, but through them, our eyes are opened in so many ways that if we didn't ever have any trials or problems, we would probably just be complacent, lazy, idle people. We would just be like, whatever. But these trials keep us on our toes, keep us on our feet, keep us trusting God. But the Holy Spirit leads us and gives us strength, and God's Word helps us to see in the dark. Our commandments were articulated by Jesus, right? And all the commandments hang on these two. You guys know, love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. How do we do that? Well, God's strength. How do we follow God? How do we obey? I, I just I, Some people are like, you know what? I can't obey, so I'm just not going to obey anything. Like, I just keep messing up, so forget it. And they give up. They walk away. They deconstruct their faith, right? Like the enemy tried to get Eve to. But um, love God, love your neighbor. Stay on track. Stay on the road of God's will. Stay following him, you know, as he leads you. He knows the way to go. He knows the way for you to go. He knows what you need to do. Better than you do. Sometimes we think, I got this, God. I'm good. I don't even need to pray. Some things we do need to pray about, right? Some things we're just like, Lord, you already you know, confirmed this. I don't even need to pray. Let's go. Or, Lord, let's not go. <laughs> but other things, it's like, I don't know, so I need to pray. I need clarity. And so God will give it. God will give it. He gives us boundaries. He loves us. So what do we do? Well, we love him. We love others. And that's a blessing.